We live in a world that is increasingly under the influence of paganism, and the viewpoint of paganism is that the world has a track on which it runs. It goes around and around and around, and it never ends. It never reaches a point of conclusion. But the Bible has an end, and these Psalms have an end. The Bible, even just by the virtue of the fact that there is a final psalm, makes a grand claim, there will be a finish line. And we long for that line. We long at last to be with the Lord forever. But I want you to notice how the psalms build up to this grand climax and let the thunderbeats of God's own heart and purpose Enter deeply into your mind as together we read. First, let's pray. Again, our God, we entrust ourselves to you and ask that in this wonderful divine act of your speaking to us, you would do something that is beyond the power of men and by your spirit come to each heart with the comfort that we need and the conviction, the persuasion of the gospel, the confidence in your purpose and arresting in your strength and your goodness and all that you are to us in Jesus, would you, O Lord, come? And despite our very great weakness, magnify in these moments your own strength and power in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Listen. Listen for the the central line of the psalm. Listen for the end of the psalms. Listen for the purpose of everything. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud, clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Did you catch it? And if you remember, these last five psalms are the concluding halal, the hallelujah psalms, the hallelujah chorus, if you like, of the whole of this book of songs. They begin each and conclude all with the words, praise the Lord, or in Hebrew, simply hallelujah. I don't know if some of you have that terrible urge when you pick up a novel and things get tedious or fearful in the middle, and you turn to the back page. You don't have to admit it tonight, but there's a reason, right? We want to know how things are going to end. Is it going to turn out well? I I, I know people in this room, some of them very close to me, who after watching a movie they were dissatisfied with, go back and rewrite the ending. You're meant in Scripture to know the end. There is an end 
Scripture makes this very bold claim. We are not on a circular track. There is an end. And the end is what? Praise. The everlasting, continual praise of the living God, which is repeated again and again and again and again. Some commentators call this the crescendo, if you like, or if you know musical terms, the sforzando, the fortissimo, the loud, the blast of, of the, the final conclusions of the finale of a grand masterpiece. This is what it is. Praise to our living and triune God. That is the end of the Psalms, and that is the purpose and the end and the design of all existence and everything that happens. I want to repeat that. The Bible makes this very powerful claim. Not only will there be an end, but it will end, all things will end in praise to God. Whatever burdens you brought in with you this evening, whatever direction life seems to be taking, Psalm 150 tells you and gives you, as it were, a window into the end of the age and your final happiness, dear believer, and the glorious ending in our company with God forever. Praise. Not a purposeless existence, we don't exist, as many of our neighborhoods think, for fun, for kids, for progress, for achievement. God's praise is the singular and the only worthy end of all things. Why has he made the clouds and the rain and the sun and the blue sky for his praise? Why has he made you for his praise? Why is it that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners by dying and rising for us? For the praise of the triune God. Everything is for this design and end. All things must praise the Lord. If you could just imagine it this way. When you enter into heaven, what is the sound of the gates opening but praise and adoration forever and ever to our God? All has to turn out well then. Everything is going to be all right in the end because it will be for what it was made. And what we are made to do is to praise our God. Now that we might do that, the psalm speaks of God and of his praise in various ways. And I want you to notice two things simply this evening from verses 1 and 2, that the God of heaven is truly worthy of all praise of all people. And then secondly, the concluding verses 3 through the end that our God will finally receive all of that praise that he deserves. Notice then, first of all, the worthiness of our God. I would suggest when we speak of God's worthiness to be praised, that an unbelieving world and maybe an unbelieving heart says, why does he deserve the praise? Why not me? Haven't I done a few things in my life? Maybe I have a few plaques on the wall, some experience and scars to prove it. Don't I deserve something here? What about me? Well, I would show you from the psalm how truly worthy your God is and how he puts all such thoughts to flight. First reason that he gives to us in verse 1, praise him in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. His first reason is that God 
comes and he meets with us. Notice how this verse, verse 1, has a kind of locational coordinate about it. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Or we might put it another way, which I hope you'll see more clearly as we move into this. Wherever God is with us, that's where he ought to be praised. Where God is with us, he ought to be praised. And he is not far from us. He is truly the transcendent God beyond all thought and understanding, beyond our highest goals, transcendent in glory, infinite in majesty. But he draws near, and he is, to use a theological term, he is imminent. He is near, not only beyond, but close at hand. And this, the psalm instructs us, is part of his worthiness. Why he ought to be praised. Because though he is entirely and wholly other, he does not retreat from you. He knows his sin-stained creatures. And what does he do? He comes. He comes and purifies, and he delights, even this evening, to meet with you and make you participants in his holiness. Who is like that? Who would draw near to the wretched offender and enemy like that, but a transcendently gracious and loving God who knows you so well and comes. I want you to notice four ways in which verse 1 can be elaborated to show God meeting with us in worship. We'll consider this at some length. God first meets with us in his holy worship. And here we have an allusion in verse 1 the sanctuary, the mighty heavens, to the types and shadows, Hebrews calls them, of the earthly temple. Notice there's a comparison. God's presence on the earth in his sanctuary and God's home, if you like, his special dominion in heaven, which can also be translated the firmament. The earthly sanctuary, here we ought to think back, if you remember Old Testament history, to the temple and the tabernacle, the physical place where God said he would come, he would meet with his people, And that holiest place, the Holy of Holies, inside the tent, inside the building, that secret spot, if you will, where God, at that little ark, with bending cherubim, illustrating his worthiness, where God, in a particular and special way, would come and meet with them, his worshipers. God is to be praised in the sanctuary. But God, his sanctuary is contrasted also with the mighty heavens. Or we could again translate this, the expanse, the firmament. It's a unique word. It's a word that takes us straight back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Remember what happens on the second day of creation. There is an expanse that God creates. There's a firmament. There are heavens that God makes, it says, on the second day. And the word is used again, it's very strikingly so, in Ezekiel chapter 1, a very strange vision of the prophet in the Old Covenant. There is above God's holy angels in their continual movement and their strangeness and this thunder and lightning coming out of a cloud and things that are difficult to interpret. Above them is an expanse. And above the expanse is a throne. And on the throne is one like the Son of Man. The firmament, the expanse, the mighty heavens, 
are the place, if you will, the nearest place, the heavens above us, the nearest place where in all created things we might come to the true presence, the power, and the throne room of God. It is the place of God's perfect and entire rule. And this is why in the Lord's Prayer we pray to our Father who is in heaven. So now, here we have heaven, God's throne. But there upon earth, in a tabernacle, in a temple, another throne in a tent. You can see that there's a comparison being made here. And notice how that is drawn out again in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 5. It says this, that the tabernacle and its furniture, the things inside of it, serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. It's a quotation from Exodus 25, verse 40. What is Moses instructed to do when he makes the temple? Make it like heaven. In every facet of Old Testament worship in the temple, in the tabernacle, it reflected, it was intended to convey to sense what is really taking place in the heavenly places where God's rule is never violated. Picture this then. Appreciate what happens as the priest walks in through the open doors of the temple and through the curtain into the Holy of Holies. He is, in one sense, given access to heaven itself. It's like he is walking into the throne room, the council room of God himself. And that's because God really did come to that earthly sanctuary. God, victorious over sin in his holiness, comes and meet with, meets with his people at a temple. Yes, he's worthy because he can actually in holiness overcome, overwhelm, and destroy what separates us from him. He comes and he meets with us unworthy people and takes away our sins in Jesus Christ. Well, those are some of the pictures, but the earthly reality has to fully reflect something of the heavenly reality incapable as it is, it still has to do it as best it may. And what happens continually in the heavenly throne room of God? Well, we hear Revelation 4 and 5, this beautiful vision at the throne room of God. What is continually taking place? Angels and glorified children of God, the saints before us who have died and are now with the Lord, are continually doing what? They're praising him. They're happy in his praise. And so we find even in the temple, in the tabernacle, that there is also praise. First Chronicles 15, the record of David preparing for the temple. He's not allowed to build it. His son Solomon will do that. But he appoints and he organizes ranks of singers and musicians. There are instruments. We read of some of those instruments here in Psalm 150. There are instruments that are detailed even in Revelation 15. There in the heavenly place, harps of God are in the hands of the saints. Appreciate then as we think about this imagery and these pictures and the beauty of earth and heaven joining in a single place, 
Heaven and earth come together, and earth is most like heaven. God's will is most done on earth as it is in heaven when God meets with us and receives our praise. Do you, can, can you just begin to see, even in the Old Covenant, what is our God telling us in worship? Heaven is going to come to earth. And all things are going to be new. And what is lacking in you and me and all the other creatures of his praise will be renewed with unending joy. Now, if that's true in the Old Covenant, that there's this parallel picture of what's happening in glory, in God's heavenly throne room, how much more in the New Covenant. We don't have a throne here today, do we? We don't have a curtain. We don't have incense burning and bread laid out and a little menorah that lights the way into the holiest place with cherubim bending over a throne. Because Jesus has told us that by the new covenant in his blood, his people will now enter through the veil and worship in the fullness of the reality, his spirit, his truth. In other words, you actually have more. You have more and better. You can actually taste in new and fresh and more completed ways the fulfilling of that promise. Our God will make all things new. Appreciate then what the psalm is alluding to, that in worship as we come, we are not just doing something heavenly. We're not just patterning after things that are going on in heaven. Appreciate what God is saying in this testimony from his word. Heaven is now meeting with you. Heaven has come to you in the worship of God when he meets with you. And so we ought to praise him. We ought to complete the worship. And not simply have God near to us, but adore him as he comes. You know, there are many fanciful stories about what heaven is like. You could just go down to Walmart, I suspect, and pick up a book on heaven. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. All right. Probably a couple of books. But if you actually want to know what heaven is like, come to church. If you want to know what it will really be like, No, not in all the details, that's true. But in the substance, come to worship. Because God here meets with you. He actually draws near in love and mercy. And he calls forth your praise and mine. And this is what he intends to do in all the earth. Well, quickly, another way in which God meets with his people is personally. In the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. Think about what happens in Christ's birth. God, the God of heaven, descends to us, becomes true man with us, dies for us, he lives again for us. And we read this understanding of it from Colossians chapter 1. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. Did you catch that? 
It's so easy to run over, and I'm not going to belabor the point this evening. Where do earth and heaven meet? Where is reconciliation made? Where is the newness of the promise? In the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his person, is the proof of God's worthiness, his true meeting with us, his deserving of praise. He calls forth your praise and mine. That is the goal. That is the end. This is why he died. This is why he gives himself to you. All praise, then, in the new covenant has to center on the cross. It isn't enough for us to speak generically about Christianity. It is not enough. It is so far from enough simply to speak of the existence of God or even only to speak of his triunity. We must at last, if we would praise him, if we would know the fellowship of God meeting with us, we must speak of the cross because it's through the blood of the cross that we are now given access to God. It is through the blood of the cross that Jesus fully, by the Spirit of God applying his benefits to us, unites with us. It is at the cross where we discover how truly, how fully our God deserves the praise. And how much more, a fourth way in which God meets with us. Christ now, Scripture tells us, dwells in your hearts by faith. Can you imagine that? That is just something surely we ought to come back to once in a while and just marvel. God dwells with us, but he's not satisfied simply to dwell with us. He dwells in us. And this is why the church in the new covenant is called the temple of God, where he meets with his people and receives the praise. You, the congregation of Jesus, are the place where God comes down in our day to earth, the very new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, this is what you are coming down out of heaven from God. What an awesome thing. And 1 Corinthians 6 even goes further and says, not just you generically, but specifically your body. And this is why Paul will even say, we ought to be careful what we do with the body. He's not talking about exercise no, we must flee sexual immorality. Why? Because it's in the body, our body, that Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God, comes and meets with us. It's in the body that he deserves our praise. Not a disembodied sort of spiritualistic idea of a God who's out there and just sort of deserves words. Once. No, he wants your body. He intends to meet with you by his Spirit in your fleshly existence. But not only that, but a fourth way in which he'll meet with you is finally and forever in the new heavens and the new earth where God will be all in all and heaven will permeate and renew the whole earth. And all that will remain, no sin at all, but praise, praise, praise forever. Thirteen hallelujahs will not be enough. It will require an eternity of praise for such a worthy God who would come to us and take us for himself and meet with us and raise us up 
to know and to enjoy him forever. And this, I'd like you to know in passing from verse 2, is what we should expect from his character. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. He deserves the honors and all praise of all the world because his acts of greatness flow from his glorious being. His mighty acts of creation and redemption are praiseworthy, and it's as if the Psalms, speaking of our experience, speaking of creation, speaking of God's providential ways, speaking of the discouragement and the trial, and even the sins of this life, the Psalms and all their ups and downs finally coalesce and come to the end and tell us it was all by God's mighty acts that through it all he brought things to final praise. Such mighty acts, such gracious work. Those of us who think about accomplishments, those who would like to have a, something of a reputation after you die, a legacy, not one of us can achieve that in the way that our God does by his mighty acts that flow from his majestic and praiseworthy personality. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. It's ultimately the very essence and the character of God that are the reason for our praise. He is God. We have in the Shorter Catechism a very simple answer to the question, what is God? And I would suggest that this is one of those motive powers to a life of praise. When we know the answer to that question, what is God? Some of you could probably answer this. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. It has being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We ought to bask in that. That's who he is. This is why he deserves the praise. This is why even now his glory fills the earth and the heavens and will at last fill our hearts forever. So appreciate this. The psalm makes the case in these two verses, verses one and two, God is really worthy. God deserves your praise. We ought then to ask a question why don't we praise him? If our evangelism and our witness in the world was based on the praise that will flow from your life and your mouth after you and I leave these doors tonight, would there be a witness? Would God actually be glorified? What is it that keeps us from praising the true and living God? And I suspect there are many reasons, but perhaps this. We feel a bit shy, right? What are other people going to think? What will people say? You ever had that awkward moment at a restaurant where you wonder, what's going to happen when I bow my head and fold my hands? Is somebody going to put something in the food? You ever had that moment where you feel like, if I tell my neighbor why I'm leaving on a Sunday morning, what are they going to think? What are we, we going to talk about after that? Is that just going to be the end of the relationship? 
And we feel a little bit of reticence, right? And we, we feel justified in that. I mean, after all, we want to have a good reputation. But my friends, I would suggest that this is actually one of the least worthy things in us. We can justify it however we like. But isn't it really pride that is at work? A self-defensive posture that insists, I must be safe and I will do it by my own means. I will withhold from God the praise that he deserves so that I have the kind of reputation and security that I hope for in this world. Friends, that is not the direction of the world. That's the reverse course, and it's not going to go that way. Things are moving rapidly on to praise. Our pride must die. I grant that we all have different personalities and gifts. Absolutely. I grant that we have different ways and particular callings that God gives to us, but I suggest that our shyness is nothing short of running the wrong way in history, and that when we go out and we're afraid and our hearts tempt us not to speak of Christ, we had better issue the rebuke of Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Psalm 1 begins, do you remember how it begins? The opening word, a particular man is what? Blessed and happy. And what is the blessing and the happiness of that man? You find it in this last psalm. Here it is at the conclusion of all things. The unveiling, if you like, of heaven itself, a window into the world to come. Praise to God. Friends, the praise of God, our witness to such a mighty God who comes and meets with us despite us, Isn't that the greatest thing we have to tell? And isn't that truly where all will end? Let's get on board. Let's be part of the end. Quickly moving on, verses 3 through 6. As God is worthy of praise, so he will also at last be praised by all. That can only happen, however, when there is a renewed heart. God is only rightly praised with a heart that is consumed and thrilled by him. I love what some commentators have said about the praise of God. Steve Lawson says, If God is real in your life, then you should be praising him with all of your being. True worship is awesome. This is true because God is awesome. Authentic worship is the most soul-thrilling, heart-stirring experience any redeemed being can enjoy. There is nothing boring about worship because there is nothing boring about God. Flat worship, he says, is an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms, an inconsistency of the highest order. If you came in tonight expecting to be bored, my dear friends, reset your expectation it's only possible by faith, by a renewed heart that can actually hear the chorus of heaven calling out the praise of God and be thrilled. But dear friends, that is your calling, and that is mine. A heart that can hear that music and join 
and be part of the great chorus. Notice that there is in the psalm, verses 3 through 5, a kind of a musical accompaniment together with the heart that will praise him. All kinds of instruments. Maybe if any of you have ever been to an orchestral performance, I do enjoy classical music. The rest of you are probably pitying me right now. But if you've been to a performance, perhaps of Beethoven's Ninth, you can think of that thrilling finale. Everything begins to coalesce. The themes come together. Finally, the voices enter in with rather humanistic words, which you don't need to know in German. But it leads up to this cascade of glorious chords and a final strike of the orchestra. That is the picture that is brought before you here in these instruments. All these things, all these instruments gathered together, the very highest of men's accomplishments, his greatest skill is for the glory and the praise of God. Music is, after all, one of our greatest and most beautiful things, is it not? But isn't it striking how music and its instruments begin? Genesis 4.21. Does anyone here remember who it was that invented instruments? The lyre and the pipe, we're told. I can see that Hannah knows. It's Jubal, yes. Lamech's son by his wife, Ada. To put this plainly, it was a descendant of wicked Cain who came up with instruments. And yet, isn't it striking how the fruits of wicked men Christ takes for himself, rules over in his lordship, and brings the very best things of man's energy and accomplishments and skill at last to praise. It isn't a Tower of Babel. It is, at last, joined with the song of the angels. The best that you can do in this life, the greatest of your accomplishments, whatever that is, even if you don't know how to sing well or know an instrument, the best that you can accomplish is for the glory of God. Even if you do not understand or recognize that, what's the story of the world? Where are things heading? Praise. The worthy God is working it out. He must, he shall receive praise from all that men do, even in their evil ways opposed to him. But notice here the instruments, just quickly. There are instruments that reflect all kinds of occasions in Hebrew life. The trumpet would summon God's people to, to worship, summon them to break camp and follow the pillar of cloud and fire through the wilderness. The lyre and the flute are sort of general categories, but you might hear these instruments if you were out in the village for a celebration, maybe a graduation or a wedding. Dancing and tambourine are joined together here. These things do go together in celebration. If you're from a, the sort of culture that does these things, a whole village joined together in delight and not with sexual appetite, but not a display of self, but rejoicing as a community, dancing, tambourine, concluding with symbols of two different varieties. It's hard to know exactly what all is implied there, but certainly it seems to indicate the clash and the battle of war, a kind of warning, if you like, to the nations around and an unsubmissive creation that our God really does reign and is really worthy. All these instruments packed into a few phrases to illustrate our God, yes, is worthy. He will receive praise for his victory over the world and sin. But not only by beautiful instruments and beautiful things that people do, he has purpose, verse 6 makes plain. And you notice that this is the last phrase, that everything that has breath, that's people would praise him. Why is man put last? 
There's kind of an implicit question here I would suggest. Instruments will praise him. The best that men have to offer in their art and skill will praise him. What about you? What about me? We are called to use our voice to praise. But throughout history, of course, this has been the counter story to God's redeeming story. Think of Daniel's three friends. They're gathered at the foot of Nebuchadnezzar's statue in chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. The herald proclaims aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. Does that sound like Psalm 150? You are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Yes, music and praise has been radically abused for idolatry throughout the ages since the fall. But it is striking that at the end of the age, Revelation 18.22 tells us that Babylon, not the church, but Babylon will never hear music again. The only people who get music and get to be part of it are those who are with Christ in glory. Everything that breathes deserves, because of sin, the wrath and curse of God. And it is striking that when Joshua leads God's people into the land of promise, a picture of the coming glories of heaven, it says that as God commanded in Deuteronomy, they dedicated to destruction all that breathed. Which makes this final verse of, of the final psalm particularly pungent. God here does not call for the destruction of all who breathe. That is what we ought to have, isn't it? That's what the Canaanites deserved. Wrath and curse, that's what we ought to fall under. But no, let everything, let all peoples, in other words, that have breath, praise the Lord. Can you hear the overtones of the gospel here? Can you hear the grace of God at work to make those who have no right to breathe capable of breathing out with joy his undying and never-ending praise through Jesus Christ? Your praises and mine anticipate the end. They are the response, not only to the promise of God's restoration at last and his mighty victory, praise is the means. Praise is one of the great means by which God restores us and brings about the new creation. When Jehoshaphat and the kingdom of Judah confront the horde of Moab and Ammon, we find that they pray and God answers and they go into battle. And what do they do? What is their foremost weapon? Jehoshaphat the king appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the enemy and to say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Guess what? They won. Quickly bringing things to a conclusion. It is a concluding psalm after all. God's praise is the relentless occupation of God's people throughout history. We have 
very little distance to go even to think of this. Think of the Huguenots under Louis XIV who banned the singing of psalms. And what did the Huguenots do? They went out into the forest and they sang them anyway. Think of Bruce Hunt, one of our historic OPC missionaries who was imprisoned by the Japanese during World War II. And there in his cell, he sang. Think of many martyrs. The early martyr Perpetua walked to the amphitheater where she was to be killed and she sang a psalm. 1886, 32 young men in Uganda were killed for their faith and they went to their death singing hymns to God. Not that far back in our history and in the minds of many who remember the history of missions, five men went to their death singing we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. Across the world today, as it is in heaven, so God's people sing and praise him and worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even where it is illegal, where it will cost them their lives, because that is not the end. The defining reality of history is God will have the praise. He is worthy and he will even raise up his people for praise. So let me give you a punchline. This is the purpose of missions and evangelism. Why do you have someone like Nate Blackle coming this morning to share about the work that he's going to do in Uganda for which we've just prayed? Because the God of heaven must and shall be praised. All knees will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is such a beautiful sound, this psalm tells us, that it isn't simply a warning note to the world, but something nobody should want to be left out of. If our neighbors and our unbelieving co-workers and even our unbelieving children really understood this. Do you think that they would actually want to be left out of the great story and the climactic event and the great joy of eternity? John Piper puts it this way. Worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. Missions exist because worship doesn't. How will God bring that about? How will God bring about worshipers throughout the world by the praises of his people. I'm going to leave you with this anecdote from a book by a man named Nick Ripkin. He writes that Dimitri was a believer in prison for his faith, the only believer among 1,500 hardened criminals in a large prison. He was tormented, he was tortured, but every morning at daybreak, during 17 years in prison, Dimitri would stand at attention by his bed, face the east, raise his arms and praise to God, and sing a song in his dialect to Jesus. The reaction of the other prisoners was predictable. Dimitri recounted their mocking laughter, cursing and jeers. They banged metal cups against the iron bars in angry protest. They threw food and sometimes human waste to try to silence him and extinguished the only true light that was shining in that dark place every morning at dawn. Well, the day arrived when Dimitri left his cell to face execution. And as he was dragged down the corridor, the strangest thing happened before he and his guard reached the door leading to the courtyard and his place of execution. 1,500 hardened criminals stood at attention by their beds. They faced the east, and they began to sing. 
They raised their arms and began to sing the very song that Dimitri had sung every morning all those years. Well, his jailers instantly released their hold on his arm and they stepped away from him in terror and they demanded, who are you? And he responded, I am a son of the living God and Jesus is his name. And shortly after that, he was released. This is the power of the praise of God's people. Let's pray and praise him together. Glorious and mighty God, worthy of all adoration and acknowledgement by all men and all creatures, even those now in rebellion. We praise you for your awesome works. We praise you for your awesome character. We glorify you that you are bringing all things to the right and proper end, your enduring praise. And we ask, though we are weak, though we foolishly, sinfully sometimes are shy, oh, our God, overcome it. Overcome all that in us is an obstacle to your praise. May you receive the adoration, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your mercy and your truth in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.